Our gospel reading for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So before we get started today, I think it's probably best if I just go ahead and put the entire issue of this week's sermon title to rest. I know you're all waiting anxiously, sitting with bated breath, eagerly anticipating my explanation of it. So I figure I may as well just put it there right out of the gate. Now, those of you who know me well might have already guessed this or been tipped off by the obviously gendered language in the title. It's not really my style. And it may surprise you to know, but today's sermon title is, in fact, an obscure science fiction reference. Come on, you all know me by now. You know, the language is a little weird, but this kind of gendered language very much was the style back in the, the bygone days of 1989, when the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation entitled The Measure of a Man first aired. Now, if for some criminal reason you are not familiar with this episode, I'll spare you the full synopsis today. I mean, I could very easily make an entire sermon about Star Trek, and it wouldn't even be out of character for me. But I'm not going to do that today. In short, though, this whole episode is just a protracted legal drama with two sides of this case arguing over the rights of one single crew member, this android, and whether this android could be considered a living, sentient creature. The core question of the episode was, does this character who is different from us count as a person? Now, of course, this sort of high-concept morality play is far from unusual in science fiction in general, and it's even less unusual in Star Trek in particular. But what always struck with me was the unique dramatic twist that this episode brought to the conversation about who or what constitutes a person. 
Rather than having this legal debate play out in a more standard courtroom setting with lawyers appointed to argue the merits of the case from either side, a combination of skillful writing and a complete lack of budget for hiring extra actors worked it out so that the prosecution and defense were handled instead by two of this android's best and closest friends. So now, instead of this case being argued impersonally, the characters here that are doing the debating, they are now invested in a totally believable, totally personal way. Of course, this investment is no challenge at all for the indefatigable Captain Jean-Luc Picard, played wonderfully well by Sir Patrick Stewart. In all of his rhetorical glory, he's vested with the responsibility of arguing for the defense and insisting on the android character's personhood. But for the character of Commander William Riker, a dear and personal friend to our android hero, he gets the task of arguing for the prosecution, and that's somewhat murkier. Because along the way, the way this is set up, he is required to bring the fullness of his skill and talent to bear on this act of prosecution. Now beyond this point, the details of the episode are kind of unnecessary. But I remember for myself watching this argument unfold as a kid and seeing the mental agony of this Riker character as he is forced to use every rhetorical trick and skill he has in the service of effectively ending his friend's life. Not only that, but completely legally erasing his personhood. And it blew me away that in this episode, where there are no physical fights, no ship-to-ship -ship combat, no weapons fire, indeed, no action sequences of any kind, that the stakes could be so high. I was amazed at what could be done, both for good and for bad, just with words. This is where I was first introduced to the idea that words not only have power, but have a power that transcends perhaps any other power at humanity's disposal. Properly put to use, our words have the power to change lives or even end them. When we speak, we are making use of a force that can be either the most powerful creative tool in the world or the most devastating weapon known to humanity. After all, we would never have known the horror of nuclear fire had not someone first said, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if we could make a bomb out of this. But perhaps more shocking even than that is the fact that many of us have very little understanding of the significance of this tool that we are almost all able to yield. We have no grasp of the superhero-esque force entrusted to us all. In fact, some people live their entire lives completely unaware that this power even exists. And this is kind of what we get today with the Apostle Peter in our passage from Matthew. You see, Peter, much like everyone else in Israel in those days, had a very specific idea of who the Messiah would be, what he was going to do, and how his time on earth was supposed to play out. He expected this warrior king who would come and 
topple the oppressive Roman government and all the yes-men it had installed in the Jewish national and religious leadership, someone who was going to establish Israel as a strong, independent nation. Peter was looking for someone to make Israel great again. So when Jesus, who Peter and company have all come to understand as the Messiah, starts talking about going to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of this same leadership, Peter is understandably conflicted. And in that moment of self-conflict, we get what I think is perhaps the most unintentionally hilarious moment of pure humanity in the entire gospel. Peter, regular human dude, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Uh, let, me, let me say that again in case you've missed how unbelievable and insanely ridiculous this is. Peter, who is himself a regular, normal Jewish man of the era, tells Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Messiah, that he's fundamentally wrong about who the Messiah is and what he's called to do. <laughs> I mean, what? Who does Peter think he is? And this wasn't some knee-jerk, in-the-moment, kind of off-the-cuff remark by Peter either, by the way. This is something Peter had taken time with, considered, thought about, and then decided upon after listening to Jesus' explanations for a while. His rebuke of Jesus is considered. It is premeditated. This is how he chose to use his words. Of course, the flaw in Peter's reasoning is obvious to all of us in retrospect. I mean, you, you can't tell God that he's wrong about God. But even in the more muddy waters of that place in time, Peter ought to know better. He may not have fully grasped the divinity of Jesus or the true place of the Messiah in history, but to be that incapable of grasping the relationship, to be that unself-aware, it's a bit of a problem. And it's one that's endemic to all of us, I'm afraid to say. You see, Peter was so mired in his own wants and desires, so stuck in his insistence on his own implicit rightness, that he moved to rebuke another rather than to rebuke himself. He never questioned whether he was doing the right thing or whether his long-held beliefs about the Messiah might just be wrong. He just goes right to rebuking someone else instead. And just like with many of us, the words Peter speaks in his rebuke serve well to advocate the position that Peter holds himself, but they do nothing to care for or consider Jesus. They're all about making Jesus do what Peter wants. Peter is so lost in what he wants the Messiah to be and to do that he doesn't realize the damage his words are capable of, the temptation that they must offer Jesus. After all, it'd be the easiest thing in the world for Jesus to simply be the Messiah they wanted him to be, to lay down the cause of peace and start kicking some Roman butt. I mean, and what's more, if he were to take that path rather than the one he's on, this would allow Jesus to completely forego the cross. There'd be no suffering, no death. Everyone would welcome him truly and completely. He could lead Israel to victory over the Romans, all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor laid at the feet of Christ. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Well, fortunately for 
all of us today, Jesus' response to the temptation in Peter's truly worthless speech is the same as it was eight chapters previous. Get behind me, Satan. Away with you. This is the hardest rebuke we see a disciple ever given by Jesus. And what's worse is that Peter could have avoided all of this if he had better recalled the lessons from Jeremiah. Jeremiah learned through some difficulty the power of our words. Our words are like a fine-tipped paintbrush capable of painting reality itself with strokes both subtle and specific. But just like any painter will tell you, the most important brush strokes aren't the ones you put on the paper. They're the dozens that you do in your head before you even pick up the brush. And the strokes you choose not to make instead. The negative space is just as meaningful as anything we paint into reality. And the passage from Jeremiah, whew, we get this in spades. In Jeremiah today, we see the agony of the prophet restrained. Jeremiah's calling opens, as many of our faith journeys do, with him eagerly consuming God's word. In verse 16, he ate God's word and was filled with joy for it. But God's calling doesn't move him to immediate action. As we see in verse 17, he waits alone for a time. He doesn't rejoice in the word or move himself to immediate action or rebuke. God calls him to sit for a spell and think about it first. And this is a terrible experience for Jeremiah. Verse 18, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Truly you are like me, you are to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. Human nature, something that is inherent in all of us, is to take action when our spirit is moved, to speak when we are inspired to speak, and move when we are inspired to move. Waiting doesn't come naturally to us. And when we are presented with the sharp dissonance between the actions of the privileged and the powerful and God's prophetic words against privilege and power, we want to be unstoppable. We want to speak up. We want to act up. We want to rebuke. But in our haste, we can forget the strength our words carry. In our immediacy, we can forget the power that our voices carry. In expedience, we can hurt rather than heal. The choice Jeremiah was wrestling with wasn't exactly one of whether to speak or not to speak. His choice was between worthless speech and precious speech. And in verse 19, we see spelled out exactly what that difference is. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall serve as my mouth. It is they who will turn to you, not you who will turn to them. For words to be precious, for one to speak the words of God's mouth, it must be speech that doesn't see the speaker bending to the will of the people, but sees the people bending to the word of God. Speech from God, what we might call truly prophetic speech, is unconcerned with social affect or the repercussions it might have for us personally, socially. Prophetic speech is speech that is unabashedly, unashamedly of God and does not try to twist or spin or translate 
or otherwise soften itself to fit the mold of society. Prophetic speech is focused on God's will and not humanity's desires. Truly precious speech is weighty with truth, declaring the reality of God as a present and active force in the world, whether or not the cultures, principalities, or powers around it approve or disapprove. Incidentally, this is the same choice that Peter faced as well. Peter chose the type of speech Jeremiah calls out as worthless, focused solely on the myopic, narrow, focused perspectives of people, to the extent that it ignored the very real word of God sitting directly in front of him. Peter spoke for himself, for his own desires, advocated for a world that he wanted, rather than a kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. Peter advocated for a world where he and his would receive much and be asked very little. And it gave no thought to the destruction that could follow if his words had even the slightest effect. You see, precious speech is distinguished by the fact that it asks a lot of us. Precious speech is self-sacrificial. It runs the risk of damaging relationships and reputations. Precious speech can upset the apple cart of society in some very uncomfortable ways. Precious speech is that which necessarily afflicts the comfortable in the name of a God who demands that justice be spoken and justice be done. <coughs> precious speech costs us. Precious speech weighs on us, pressures us, hurts us. Precious speech converts our social currency into God's justice in real time so that even as we hurt for it, others might be uplifted <coughs> and God's mercy can be shown around us. Precious speech costs us relationships with racist family members, knowing that when we stand up to them, we lose one relationship while affirming the personhood of others. Precious speech costs us jobs, for standing up to that misogynistic or sexist employers, knowing that our risk affirms the worth of those suffering around us. Precious speech is declaring that black lives matter in a world that has long insisted through direct action and institutional policy that they absolutely do not, even knowing that we will lose relationships and opportunities for saying otherwise. <coughs> Precious speech is calling out the tyranny and abuses of empire knowing that it makes us a target. Worthless speech asks nothing of us. Worthless speech sees normalcy maintained at the expense of justice deferred or ignored. Worthless speech sees systems of power and privilege unchallenged because it would be too risky, too challenging, or too troublesome. Worthless speech yields tepid sermons, afraid of diminished giving or reduced budgets. Worthless speech yields political compromise in the name of electability. Worthless speech yields unchallenged racism among us in the ephemeral name of civility. When we engage in worthless, unconsidered speech, we gain. Worthless speech is easy. It's a chance, <coughs> excuse me, it's a chance for us to feel powerful without risk, without danger, and without cost. Worthless speech takes away from us the burden of consideration and lets loose the weapons of our mouth unreservedly. And worthless speech can be sneaky. After all, Peter was asserting that Jesus' life mattered. He was 
mired in the wrongness of the coming torture and crucifixion. And in a very real sense, he was not wrong. What was to come was wrong and painful and destructive. But it was necessary. And by speaking as he did, without considering God's calling on the events around, Peter found himself speaking directly against God. Get behind me, Satan, indeed. So today, I want to invite you to a place of consideration. The world around us is rife with fear, and suffering, injustice, and death. What word has God placed on your heart? Have you considered it? And taken that weighty, difficult walk with Jeremiah in order to find out whether your speech is precious or worthless. At the end of that episode of Star Trek, there was an exchange between the android and his friend who had been forced to argue against his personality. His friend was, of course, quite understandably, racked with guilt over the fact that he had very nearly succeeded in convincing this court to rule against his android friend. Doing what he did, it hurt him deeply and personally, and he was deathly afraid that it would cost him this very dear friendship as well. And the android pointed out, had his friend not argued, there would have been no trial, just a summary judgment against the android. That action injured you and saved me, he pointed out. I will not forget that right there. That is what truly precious speech is. Precious speech is injurious to us, but saves another. Precious speech isn't for us at all. Precious speech is one that surrenders our own sense of self-preservation, our own worries about ourselves, and trusts entirely on the protections of God instead. So have confidence, my friends, in the protection of God, knowing that when we speak what is precious, God makes us into fortified walls of bronze. And have faith, knowing that when we speak, the precious, prophetic words of God in the world, we are making room for God's justice, mercy, peace, and love to be done in, around, and through us. Amen.